You know, I've seen my fair share of whacked out liberal green hairs in my day, but what I experienced last week while speaking at the University of New Mexico was another level of filth. These Albuquerque campus terrorists were nothing short of rabid. I'm about to tell you all about it because the show starts now. I've become quite used to liberals going berserk when I come to speaking events, especially on college campuses. They whine, they cry, they throw tantrums, they protest. All that is fine and dandy. Use the First Amendment, call me names, whatever. But what happened last Thursday night was not the First Amendment. It was not protected speech. It was what happens when the meek misfits of society band together in a mob and go buck wild because society has coddled and protected them for far too long. This angry mob of disgruntled thugs pushed through campus security, shoving and physically assaulting the campus officers, attempting to guard the doors. They pulled the fire alarm, made verbal threats, and continued to try to push their way inside, screaming and chanting expletives at the top of their lungs. About 30 minutes into my speech, they became so aggressive and out of control, they nearly busted through the doors. And it was at that point the campus officers rushed me, my dad, and an elderly couple into the student union back kitchen for our safety. But some of these saintly protesters now want to claim what they did was peaceful and an exercise of free speech. Yeah, no. It was so bad that New Mexico State Police, Albuquerque Police, and the emergency response team had to be called in. Not by the university, mind you. UNM did nothing despite the fact they knew this mayhem was planned, knew it was getting more and more dangerous by the minute, and knew personal safety for me and the other students was at risk. They just didn't quite frankly give a damn. But these wildly triggered campus liberals, with the help of Antifa provocateurs, build their right as a protest against white supremacy because these wackos have learned if they use that banner and that cause, they'll be granted the moral high ground regardless of the merits and can act in any manner they choose with no repercussions. But can you imagine the outcry if this has happened at an event for a liberal, leftist, or Democrat speaker? Boy, I have a strong feeling those involved would be suspended, fined, or both at the bare, bare minimum. But as for these rabid liberal banshees, no, celebrated. It wasn't until UNM got a call from Fox News and the incident started trending on Twitter that they made a statement they'd investigate what happened. Well, let me help you, UNM. Your beloved campus social justice warriors plastered it all over social media. And the ringleader behind the whole thing is a journalist for the student-run campus newspaper, for God's sake. If you'd like to know a little bit about him, he was previously arrested for restraining and sitting on his girlfriend for over an hour and threatening to put her head in a meat grinder. Yeah, sounds like your typical First Amendment advocate, right? The man is practically the James Madison of Albuquerque right there. But it wasn't just psychotic college kids that celebrated what happened on Thursday night. The disgusting blue checks and liberals of Twitter, they had to chime in. A New York Times reporter, a former NBA turned podcaster, and of course, the always abhorrent Keith Olbermann. I'm forced to hide out in a student union kitchen before being taken away by a SWAT team in an armored vehicle, and these loving and tolerant feminist liberals cheerlead it. Imagine if a conservative writer or a TV personality tweeted about any liberal woman in my situation and then called her an escort. These Twitter a-holes, the protester, the university, everyone involved, disgusting. You know, I can take name-calling, I can deal with signs and chants and protests. This was not that. And what was their goal? What would they have done if they were able to get in that room? 
Would they have mauled me, kidnapped me, dragged me through the campus? I don't know. They kicked holes in their own student union and assaulted officers, so it just goes to show how little Fs they give about basic decency. And look, I'm safe. I was escorted safely by police. I'm fine. But think about those students who attended the speech. I don't even know how they were able to get out of there without being harmed, but I hope to God they all did and they got home safely. And now they have to return to class with these psychopaths who tried to attack them. And all for what? Because Tommy Lahren came to speak at a completely voluntary speech in a student union banquet hall at 7 p.m. on a Thursday night. If you're wondering why your kids go to college conservative and come home communist, well, look no further than the campus environment aided, abetted, and fostered by Democrats, the media, and the university system at large. But if you think this is going to stop me or any of the conservative students I was lucky enough to meet that night, well, you're sorely mistaken. No, I'm more energized than ever. And you little twerps might feel high and mighty about what you did. I'm sure you sat in your mama's basement with your double masks on and felt pretty cool. But make no mistake, my green-haired friends, you didn't win. Because there are two types of people in this world, those who are humble and those who are about to be. You're the latter of the two, and your time is coming. Bet on that. But up next, she was the education secretary under President Trump, and she has a whole lot to say about Title IX, LGBT grooming, the masking of students, and much more. Betsy DeVos joins me next. As a powerful conservative woman appointed to a well-deserved position within the Trump administration, my next guest is no stranger to controversy, so I know she's going to have a lot to say about the state of education, or should I say miseducation, of today's youth. The K-12 through indoctrination model is alive, well, and woke, but we're about to put it to bed. Joining me now is former U.S. Secretary of Education Betsy DeVos. She's also the author of the book Hostages No More, The Fight for Education, Freedom, and the Future of the American Child. Oh, Betsy, there's so much going on in our country right now, and I'm telling you, I really wish that we still had you at the helm. Well, thanks, Tommy. It uh, it really is alarming what has uh, what has transpired, what has actually been revealed to parents across the country in this last couple of years. You know, early on in the pandemic, I said the unions are going to go too far; they're going to overplay their hand, and they've doubled down on that at every step of the way. And it's just a tragedy what has happened to kids from coast to coast. Well, not only are they doubling down, they're attempting to rewrite history. Now the teachers unions and, and many prominent Democrats are trying to say that they wanted to keep schools open. They didn't want kids mass. I mean, it's amazing how they're gaslighting all of us into believing that they were for in-person education and all these things. But speaking of the teachers union, we know how much power they wield. And we know that they really have the Democrats by the jugular, especially in places like California. And we saw throughout the pandemic. But when you were Secretary of Education, how did you deal with them? And what advice would you give somebody who wanted to reel them in from the current state of power that they have? Well, I've dealt with them for 35 years as I've advocated for policy change that supports and empowers families 
and and really takes that power from the unions, which has only strengthened over the last several decades. Uh, what I recommend is that uh, we continue to reveal all of the ways in which they have actually been self-serving, not serving kids. And, uh, and parents saw this firsthand and continue to see it, not only with the lengthy shutdowns, lockouts, close downs, mask mandates, but then uh, the curriculum that they're, they're, they found out their children are being exposed to, whether it's offensive, uh, totally age inappropriate, sexually explicit materials, or whether it's woke CRT curriculum, uh, you name it, parents have been disappointed, parents have been angered, and rightfully so. Uh, not to mention the fact that well before the pandemic, uh, kids were struggling in their ability to even learn because the schools were not serving them. The unions and their allies have had a stranglehold on American kids and their, and their learning opportunities for decades and they've now been exposed. It's time for change. It certainly is, and I think it's frustrating because we love teachers, and we always try to separate the teachers' unions from the teachers, but I don't know, that line seems to be blurred, at least in the last couple of years. So we like to think that those that go into education want to teach students. They want to teach students reading, writing, arithmetic. They want to foster educational and academic growth. But a lot of the teachers now that we have in the classrooms, unfortunately, have been there really to push a political agenda or a political narrative. And the parents that are speaking out about that, the DOJ calls them domestic terrorists. When you heard that, what were you thinking that, you know, the FBI, now these parents are basically on watch lists as if they're common criminals for wanting, I don't know, their kids to be able to breathe freely, maybe not be followed into the bathroom by a bio biological male, all these things that we've learned in the last couple of years. What were your thoughts when you saw it all go down? Well, it's just appalling to think that because parents have spoken up and want to know more about what their children are experiencing in their classrooms, uh, they've now been called, as you said, domestic terrorists, and they've been investigated by the FBI. Um, it is uh, a matter of totally misplaced priorities on the part of this administration to go after parents who are rightfully concerned about their own children, while at the same time looking the other way when far too many things are going, uh, going awry in other places in the country. It, the, the, this administration has taken the good um, steps that we took during the Trump administration to put the focus on kids, on their learning, their opportunities to learn, and an empowering family and empowering families to find the best place for their kids to learn. They've taken all of our policies and turned them absolutely 180 degrees, continuing to solidify the power with the teachers' unions and their allies who are all about themselves. They're not about kids. But there's a lot of things happening right now. You mentioned critical race theory, but also this LGBT grooming that's going on. And a lot of folks think that the answer is private schools. But a lot of the private schools, even here in Tennessee, kind of illustrious private schools, they're dealing with the same thing with the CRT, the, the learning all the pronouns, all these pamphlets that kids are getting. They're learning how to bind their chest and tuck their private parts. I mean, it seems like it's almost impossible to root this out. What would your suggestion be for parents who can't afford to pull their kids out of school into these smaller classrooms or to this private learning? What do parents do at this point? 
Well, first of all, they continue to speak up at their school board meetings and in their communities about these issues, raising the questions and and um, you know and, and and really demanding to see what is uh, being taught to their children. But secondly, they need to support candidates that are going to support them, giving them as parents and families the opportunity to control their kids' education dollars. I've often said we should be supporting funding kids, not systems, not buildings, not systems. If we metaphorically attach like a backpack, uh, the money that go is already being spent on a child in that on that child's backpack for that family to decide where they want to get their education, we're going to see a resolution to many of these issues. We're also going to see a whole lot more creativity for kids in the ways they learn and in the places they learn. And uh, we've seen this uh, happening in a state like Arizona, the first state to go to a universal education savings account. Families there during the pandemic got together and formed little micro schools or basically, you know, larger homeschool situations. And frankly, many teachers found those very attractive as well. Those are the kinds of things that education freedom policy can support and can support families regardless of their income to pursue. And I've always said, too, and a lot of Republicans have been for school choice. And it's so bizarre to me, as much as liberals and Democrats talk about education and they talk about wondrous teachers, they don't believe in school choice because, of course, they're beholden to the teachers unions. But another thing I want to get your take on, because I think this is really interesting. Right now, we're seeing an influx of illegal immigrants across our southern border. These kids, a lot of them are children. They got to go to school somewhere. And, you know, we have compassion for these students that, that need to be placed in schools. Of course, we look at children and we, we treat them with dignity and with respect. But I have to wonder, the places that they're going usually already underserved communities. These students don't speak English. They're being put in a classroom that's already at capacity or over capacity. What is happening then when you have the situation and more coming in each day to the American students in these classrooms? How does their education suffer or how is it impacted by this influx coming across our border? Well, it's clearly exacerbating a problem that's been there for a long, long time. Uh, we saw with the most recent Nations Report Card scores coming out uh, that were pre-pandemic, we saw a, a decline across the board. And then importantly, the uh, the scores that the, the tests that they ran this last year to assess where kids were as a result of a pandemic, uh, the scores have just nosedives plummeted across the board. And this is tragic for kids who are locked out of school for months on ends, in, in many cases, more like two years in LA. And uh, you layer on that a bunch of new kids coming in. And it is, it, is a, it is a tragedy for everyone involved. There's been a lot of discussion about teacher pay. So I think there's two sides to that coin. We say, yes, we want teachers to make more money because we want to have the best of the best. We want to inspire those that have a zest for learning and education to go into that field. And we want to make sure that the pay reflects that, just like we do police officers and everybody that's so essential to our society. But then there's a lot of people out there, too, that are thinking we're going to pay these teachers more who are indoctrinating our kids with they, them pronouns and CRT. So I think it's a difficult conversation. But I wonder, do you think there's a discussion about it in Florida right now as well, DeSantis? edged up the salaries a little bit, but people are still saying, you know, it's too low. 
Do we need to pay teachers more across the board? Would that be helpful to secure the best of the best? Well, I don't think you can pay a great teacher too much. And the reality is in a in an environment where everyone is free to choose where to buy your education, uh, your, your child's education, a great teacher becomes the most valuable part of that equation and they will be rewarded and compensated as such. Those who are not great may have a hard time uh, you know, getting that recognition and getting that kind of compensation. And perhaps not great teachers should be going and looking for a different profession. We need more great people to go into teaching, those that are going to effectively help our kids uh, learn and grow and challenging them in, in new and different ways. But the same top-down, one-size-fits-all model that we've all known for 175 years is no longer relevant today. And the pandemic revealed that in multiple ways. So a lot of what we're realizing today about what has been transpiring that wasn't apparent to families two years ago, uh, this is really bringing about the kind of demand for policy change that supports the families and the kids. And rightfully so, when we see those policies actually implemented, we're going to begin to see the kind of change that we need to see. Well, I think we saw it too uh, last year in Virginia, or this year, I guess, in Virginia, this last election, parents really stood up and, and moved the needle in that election. And I think we're going to see that if people remain focused in midterms. But lastly, I have a feeling that your book is a lot about all this and about school choice and about freedom. But tell us about your book and what people are going to learn when they read it. Well, it really is a tool for parents to give them a, a more of a voice and uh, more tools for advocating for their own children and how they can help be part of the change that needs to happen. And uh, I, I really encourage uh, folks to pick it up. It's also a little part memoir because I think there's a lot about me that people don't really uh, know and understand as the media certainly didn't give me a lot of opportunity to right. speak for myself. And, uh, and so it, it really is about the story of education freedom and the fight for that. And many of the people with whom I've worked for, like I said, 35 years to really enact the policies that we're seeing, um, the momentum for which is just, uh, it, it is magnified today. Secretary, I have to ask you, too, in closing, because I'm just personally curious. Did you get the same treatment from colleagues, from, uh, from, from friends, from family, from peers before you worked for President Trump as you did afterwards? Or was it just that attachment to the word Trump that made people come after you with daggers? Because it seems to be with a lot of other folks in the administration that was the case. Well, I'm sure that was a part of it, but I was uh, an enemy of the teachers unions well before I went to Washington. Um, I had gone toe to toe with them in a number of states in which we worked, and uh, they have fought long and hard to protect their turf and to protect their control to demand the resources, you know, 99% of their political, their reported political contributions go to the Democrats, Democrats running for office, Democrats in elective office that promise to do their bidding. And we're seeing that uh, fully blown in this administration. And so uh, this was, I was not a stranger to these kinds of attacks, but it was certainly a whole new level when going to Washington.
So uh, what does Randy Weingarten think of you? I have a feeling she doesn't praise you highly. We know on the record hasn't praised you highly, but have you had any conversations with her that haven't been in front of cameras, in front of the media, or haven't been publicized, where you've actually been able to get down to the bare bones of things? Because you are two big heavyweights in this system of education, and I'd be curious to know if maybe she's a little bit different when the, the cameras aren't on. Well, I recount this in my book, but I did visit a school with Randy um, while in office, and uh, she I actually spoke with her on my first day in office. I reached out and said, I know we don't agree on a number of things, but I'm sure we can find common ground on some things. And so I invited her to visit a school with me. She invited me to visit one with her. I agreed to go to the one of her choice first, and sadly, we could never seem to find a date or she could never seem to find a date to visit the school that I chose. But uh, that story is recounted at, at some length in my book. And we did have conversation off camera there. Um, I, I wish that she would have gone to a school with me because I would have taken her to see a place that uh, that she rails against, but that is serving kids and whose families are choosing for their kids to be there. And, um, and what you know, school was this, that? What school was that, Secretary? Just so that everybody's aware. Well, the school we visited at her choice was in Ohio, and um, it was a small rural town in Ohio, and it was it was a, a lovely visit. But I would have taken her. There's there's any number of schools I would have taken her to that would have been a tremendous uh, look into what choice means for families when they're empowered with the resources necessary. Yeah, she didn't want to see it because then she would have to open her mind about it and then she might just have to change her opinion. And that wouldn't go well with the industrial complex that is the teachers union. But thank you for sharing that with us. I know there's going to be so many great stories in your book for everybody to read and really pull the curtain back to everything that you went through and your dedication to education and school choice. So thank you so much for being with me. And we hope to have you back anytime. Thanks so much, Tommy. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. All right. Up next, turns out rich white liberals, especially the white ones, love illegal immigrants so long as they don't have to be near them. My final thoughts are next. Pop quiz, how many illegal immigrants does it take to make white rich liberals really uncomfortable? Answer, about 50 or the equivalent of two plane loads via DeSantis Airlines. It's time for final thoughts. Yes, if you have folks that are inclined to think Florida is a good place, our message to them is we are not a sanctuary state and it's better to be able to go to a sanctuary jurisdiction. And yes, we will help facilitate that transport for you to be able to go to greener pastures. Greener pastures indeed. Yeah, last week Ron DeSantis gave the rich elitists of Martha's Vineyard, an exclusive island community in Dukes County, Massachusetts, the beautiful gift of roughly 50 illegal immigrants. And boy, were they surprised by his generosity. Take a look. So what are the most difficult challenges right now? The difficult challenges are uh, we have, at some point in time, they have to move to somewhere else, right? We, we cannot, we don't have the services to take care of 50 immigrants, um, and we, we certainly don't have housing. We're in a housing crisis as we are on this island, and so we, we don't, we can't house everyone here that lives here and works here. We don't have housing for 50 more people. We 
Vineyard. Martha's Vineyard is home to dozens of multimillionaires, including James Taylor, David Letterman, Spike Lee, and one Barack Obama, just to name a few. The island has a median home value of nearly 800,000 bucks, and the county voted overwhelmingly for open border Joe in 2020. They have the means and the politics to welcome illegal immigrants, one and all, into their illustrious community and into their mega estates. But oddly, they couldn't even stomach 50 of their precious migrants. Not only did the community label it a humanitarian crisis and activate the National Guard, just Two days after receiving Florida's illegal immigrant gift, the loving and tolerant folks of Martha's Vineyard had the migrants sent to military housing on the Cape Cod mainland. I guess this means the ultra-wealthy and ultra-libs of Martha's Vineyard are all for the open border, all for border states and cities being overrun by illegal foreigners, all for the idea of shielding them from deportation so long as they don't have to actually be near them themselves. Sound about right? Well... That's too damn bad. I say keep sending the flights, keep packing the busloads, keep spreading the illegal immigrant love far and wide into these blue sanctuary cities and states. If they don't have the geographical luxury of seeing that loving, intolerant, open border, well, keep sending the open border to them. 50 illegals, folks. That's all it took for these liberals to cry foul. Now take that and add the population of Ireland, and you've got the number of illegals we've let waltz across the southern border since Biden was vote-by-mailed into the White House. If the liberals want to turn a blind eye to it, well, put it right under their nose and right in their backyards and they'll flinch. You can take that prediction to the bank. And those are my final thoughts. Be sure to follow me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Tommy Laren. And don't forget, you can watch the entire show and exclusive content on OutKick.com. From Nashville, God bless and take care.